During Eastertide this year, we've been reminding ourselves that the resurrected Christ is alive, and he is bringing human history to its intended conclusion. And we see in our readings this morning that a core aspect of this is the forming and leading of his people. And what these readings are meant to help us see this morning is the genuine journey, the genuine mental, emotional, spiritual problem it was for his first followers to figure out how was this going to work from knowing a physical presence, a, a person with a body, to being led by the Spirit, whatever that might be, right? Like, we feel like we get that after 2,000 years of reflection. But for these people, this was a lived experience. This was a lived journey that was challenging their faith and challenging their understanding of things. And so what we have in Acts 16, as Beth said, it's a misprint, sorry, in your bulletin, but most of you know this well-rehearsed well, uh, well story of Paul's vision of a man in Macedonia, and this, of course, serves as, a, as, a, as an example. This is how it worked. Paul's heading north. His strategic plan, and I'm not putting down strategic plans, but his strategic plan was to turn right and go into what we think of as Asia. And he gets stuck and doesn't know quite what to do and has this vision of a man calling to him from Macedonia saying, please, come help us. Now, can we just stop and think for a second? That that is a turning point in world history. That Christianity, though it is actually an Eastern religion, is now thought of what? As a Western religion. Because of a vision. Now, I think I kind of know that if one of our friends came to us and said, hey, I have a vision. And, and not the kind of entrepreneurial visions that we're used to. But the kind of vision in which somebody said, I think God's directing my life through a vision. We would all be... Like a little bit skeptical maybe, right? Or at least would want to ask, are you sure? And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. I'm just trying to get you to help you see how crazy this must have felt to them. So I had a vision and I'm supposed to obey this? And, and of course, Paul couldn't have possibly known that this actually was a turning point in all of human history. So the Bible, as you know, probably, is full of visions from, you know, Genesis to Revelation. It's just visions, God giving his people visions all over the place. And this is a good, I think, and hopeful thing. And if you say why, I would say because it's a prime example of God being engaged with us, of catching our attention even when we intend to do one thing to lead us and guide us in a different way. The message has it this way, the dream or the vision gave Paul his map. That's beautiful. All right, can you hear that? It gave Paul his map. And all the pieces came together for him through this vision. As Paul said, we knew for sure that God had called us to preach the good news to the Europeans. Again, obviously that's not an ethnic statement, but it's, it's the message capturing what's real. Turn to left and headed into what we now think of as Europe. So just as Jesus had promised, the Spirit was actually leading his people. He was actually teaching them all things and reminding them all that I'd said to you, as Jesus had said. And so the Spirit was both, we didn't read this part, but the first part of Acts 16 says that the Spirit actually kept Paul from going where he wanted to go. 
So the Spirit is leading, you might say, sort of negatively, but also leading them positively. And what I want to commend to you this morning is this idea that the sending of the Spirit is an aspect of God's love for us. The sending of the Spirit uh, was not meant to create Christian denominations. Just saying. That the sending of the Spirit, no different than the incarnation itself, the work of Jesus, his ministry, his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, we all are very clear that that is God's love for us. Well, what if sending of the Spirit is God's love for us as well? And that what it actually demonstrates is his ongoing, constant, consistent solidarity with his broken world. That he remains both in the world, but in the church in this very deep and profound way. And that this actually demonstrates God's love. Now, I, I know that right here today, right now, at whatever it is, 10.30 in the morning on a Sunday, all over Southern California, there would be churches who are proud of, we don't really mess with the Spirit. And I know these people, they're good and lovely people, and I've, I've heard hundreds of them say to me over my career, when asked why, they will say, well, because he's, it's divisive. And boy, once you start letting the Spirit be active in the church, it's just too divisive, people, people choose sides, and, and right? So we all hear this sort of negative stuff, right? I'm sure I'm not the only one who's heard this. And then on the other side of the coin, all over today, you would have people who are proud of we are a charismatic church or we're a Pentecostal church, right? And so this becomes, rather than what it's meant to be, an aspect of kind of consumer-driven religion. So if, as a consumer choice, you'd like to have a not-so-divisive church, well, then you might pick an, uh, you know, sort of an anti-charismatic church. If, on the other hand, you have a different sort of consumeristic thing going on, then you might want to choose this other thing. And I just want to say that, like, that is ridiculous. That's absurd. The sending of the Spirit is an aspect of God's overall work with people, and it's not something that we get to make consumer decisions about. It actually gets to something very deep. Because the kind of engagement with the Spirit that Paul was experiencing requires a desire for it. You actually have to want to be led by the Spirit to have a, any kind of consistent engagement with Him. I mean, God is not typically a nag. He typically leaves us according to our present bent and deals with us according to our present system of desires. Now, there are exceptions to every rule, but you just need to think of Jesus letting the rich young ruler walk away. Or picture Jesus responding to Zacchaeus. Hey, Zacchaeus, I want to have dinner with you. Right? I'm coming down. So, Jesus, so Zacchaeus comes down and has Jesus for dinner. The rich young ruler walks away. And again, there are exceptions to every rule. There's your occasional Moses. There's your occasional Paul being, you know, knocked to the ground. And, you know, there, there are exceptions to every rule. But the rule is God values and works with us according to our current bent. And so it shouldn't surprise us if some people are, like, skeptical of the Spirit 
or don't really want to have anything to do with it, that that wouldn't then become a self-referential proof that, well, the Spirit really doesn't do much today. But as soon as you desire it, as soon as you're willing to let the Spirit for, um, uh, forbid you from doing something you have in your heart to do, like, are you really ready for that? Like, seriously? Like, not just a, the right religious answer, but are you really ready to say, I was pursuing this path, but the Spirit spoke to me to go to a different path? Do we actually desire that is a question that this text asks us. Paul, though, he sees it, and the text says he's ready at once to obey. And it reminds us that our failure to hear God's voice when we want to, no, which gets this, our failure to hear God's voice when we want to is generally because we don't, in general, want to hear it. And so you see what I'm saying? If our inner posture, in general, just isn't really kind of that focused on hearing what God thinks or what God wants, and then we like, want to hear it when we want to hear it, well, there's no practice for hearing it. We don't actually know His voice when we only want to hear it when we think we need it. Did you catch that? I wonder if Paul thought he needed it. Or was this like a big surprise? I thought I, thought I was right. I, I thought this is where I was heading. And maybe he wasn't aware of needing it, but having a desire to be trained and, and to follow God, he was open to it. So learning how to hear God is best sought as an overall part of a certain kind of life, a life of loving fellowship with God and a community of faith. When you have that going, when you have loving God in a, in a loving community of faith, well, now you've got the sort of seedbed in which this can happen. Gene Peterson has written, the way of Jesus requires an active participation in following Jesus as he leads us through sometimes strange and unfamiliar circumstances that become clear only in the hesitations and questionings. I mean, can you imagine, Paul? What is that? Like, did I really hear that? And where's Macedonia? And he couldn't, like, get out a phone, you know, and Google it. And then he gets there, and apparently it's not a man who's the divine appointment anyway. It's this woman, Lydia. I mean, can you imagine the questionings? This is what Eugene is getting at. That things become clear only as we, in faith, follow Christ, in the hesitations and questionings, in the pauses and reflections, where we engage in prayerful conversation with one another and with him. This is what I think I want to say, that this whole business of visions often gets talked about in these sort of charismatic, non-charismatic ways, and I've addressed that. But you know what I think is actually more fundamental? Is do we have ears to hear? Or do we have ears to filter and manage Jesus according to what we want? Right? This is what he routinely faced. The Herodians wanted a certain way of being Jewish. So did the Zealots. So did the Qumran sect. So did the Pharisees. So did the Sadducees. So did the teachers of the law. They all had their sense of what it meant to be following God. And when Jesus taught them, they did not have ears to hear him. They had ears to filter and manage him the way a principled Democrat would or a principled Republican would. They didn't have ears to hear him. They had ears to filter and manage him 
according to their present worldview. And as long as that's the case, then we'll always be able to just brush off visions or dreams or hearing from God or somebody hearing from God for us as they're praying. Those things will always be easily brushed off if we don't have in us a more fundamental desire to actually hear God and to engage with him. So this whole event I want you to see um, that Beth read to us, this, this whole passage in Acts is a spirit event because the spirit's not just working on Paul, but he's working on Lydia too. This woman who the text says was a seller of purple garments, now that wouldn't mean much to us, it just seemed like kind of an interesting aside, but it's not an interesting aside uh, if we had lived in this day. It meant that she not only had a certain amount of economic power based in commerce, but who could wear purple? Do any of you remember? There's only certain kind of people in society who could wear purple. It was the people in power, some sort of power or another. It could have been religious or educational or governmental power, but in that day, you could only wear purple if you were in power. So this means that she's at dinner parties with the powerful all the time and having power lunches with those who might want to buy her garment. This is a successful woman. And I think, by the way, I just want to say a little, uh, little insert here, that this is why we must never let dismissiveness or bitterness grow in our hearts towards people with influence. And it's happening more and more and more, I just want to say. I mean, come on, where does it stop? Our hatred for big banks, our hatred for politicians, our hatred for corporations, where does this stop? And as long as we let that kind of dismissiveness or hatred for power grow in our hearts, how will we ever speak to the Lydias of our world? How would we ever allow God to even open our hearts towards the president of something or the vice president of this? You see what I mean? I mean, I think, you, I think you get what I'm saying here, that at least culturally, I don't know about the church, I can't say, but at least culturally, there is a growing dismissiveness, if not hatred, for anybody who has any kind of power and authority. So it might be right to say that God has a preference for the poor, but I want us to say that he also loves the strong, the successful, the influential, people like Lydia, actually loved her. So this seller of purple fabric, as I said, put her in a social circle of wealth. And this made her different from the vast majority of women uh, that she would have known because it meant that she was independent and in command of her life. And I mean this in a good way. She was not utterly dependent the way women would have been in this culture. But by the Spirit, like Cornelius in Acts 10, or the centurion who Jesus commended in the Gospels, she had a soft heart towards God and others. And so the text says the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. And then it shows us her living in an almost instant, humble, and generous hospitality. So here's what I want you to see. Look at me, this is what I want you to feel. Here's Paul doing what he sincerely thinks is right, heading north out of Antioch, going to turn right and go into what we now think of as Asia. He has this vision of a man, a person in Macedonia calling to come help. God's been working on this woman, Lydia, and it changes the whole course of human history. And it's all being worked on. Apparently Lydia, apparently Lydia used to go down to the river on the Sabbath and meet with people, and Paul shows up there because he hears that's where the believers are. She hears some sort of message from Paul, and the rest, as we say, is history. 
And the reason seeing the bridge of the Spirit speaking through this vision is so important is what the writer, uh, what John wants us to see in Revelation 21, that there's this assured backdrop against which we try to hear and serve God as his cooperative friends. And so whatever else the book of Revelation might be to you, it should be at least this, a hugely valuable perspective that at least says we are not trapped. We're not trapped in a system created by human beings with power. I don't mean to say there aren't systemic injustices. Of course, there are. It just means that in spite of them, we are not trapped. And the world isn't trapped. And here's why I think this is important, is that feeling trapped is the rationale for much of humanity's most desperate and harmful behavior. Right? You all know the saying about a cornered animal? That given their choice would just run, but when feeling trapped, backed into a corner, as we say, then, you know, these animals will do anything. Seeing no route of escape, then though they might not normally be animals that attack, so against their normal way of being, if put into a corner, if felt trapped, will attack. So now just think of the marketplace and political rallies and marriages. When you do not have a backdrop of revelation that this is all heading somewhere and you feel trapped by the circumstances of your life or we feel trapped by the circumstances of our life because we do not have a sense that the spirit is active and bringing human history to its conclusion, right? Can you picture somebody there? And that, how that feeling of trappedness then becomes the rationale for desperate, harmful, even violent behavior. But if we have that picture in our mind of revelation, then it raises the question, well, what if Jesus could be the Lord of our most scary and desperate moments? So what if you were right-sized by a creepy corporation with bad motives? Could Jesus be the Lord of that really scary moment? Are you really backed into a corner in which you must then rationalize desperate behaviors? Or is like revelation in this whole spirit world that, that God is superintending human history, is that real? And then would that allow us a different kind of confidence I mean, ask yourself, if Jesus were Lord of our, someone's most scary and desperate moments, what do you suppose would be the inner nature of a person with such confidence? Like, how could you cultivate an inner nature in which that could be true? True in that, again, as the, the passage in Revelation said, the city does not need sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. How could the lamb be a lamp in your scariest moments, the darkest moments, the most desperate moments? This is the vision that these passages put before us. And for John, at least, one of the ways this happens is that, you know, all the synoptic gospels show Jesus in agony in the garden. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but John doesn't. No garden scene in John. You do not see that moment where he's in agony and sweating, you know, drops, great drops of blood. 
What John shows us is Jesus confident in God that the powers do not have ultimate power over him. What John shows us is that for Jesus, worse than death would have been to act as if he were trapped. To act against the Trinitarian reality that he knows of his Father's love and care for him. For Jesus to have acted as if he were desperate would have been worse than death. And what John wants to show this is that this is an aspect of living an eternal kind of life now, a life lived against the secure backdrop of this revelation, plan, and work of God. This is why John 14, you know, one, the chapter begins with, do you remember? Let not your hearts be troubled, for I'm going to prepare a place for you. You're what? That makes us feel insecure. But then we read, but if you love me, if you keep my commands, my Father and I will come. I am not going away in the, think, in the way you think. Whatever my going away is does not equal abandonment for you. I'm not, I'm not departing in the way that you've known every other departure in your whole life. The way I'm departing means that as you begin to listen and come to know and work with the Spirit, that you will actually enter into a different kind of life. And that this is the secure backdrop against which you never have to be desperate again. So this is the peace that John shows us that Jesus both models and gives. When he says, though the ruler of the world is coming now to get me, he says, let us arise and go in the name and power and story of my Father. So John 14 is this farewell conversation. It's producing lots of anxious questions about the future. And Jesus is seeking to give his first followers this perspective, this reality that he knows from Revelation 21. So he's essentially saying, don't get thrown off by all this. That's kind of a nice paraphrase of 14.1. Don't let the fact that I'm leaving throw you off. And then 14.27, as we read this morning, my peace I give to you. And then Jesus gives us this promise. If anyone loves me and keeps my word, then my Father and I will come to him her and make our home with them. And this is eternal life as Jesus thought of it and as he described it. It's not just the life that Jesus was going away to prepare this mansion in heaven, but it was life with the quality of eternity to it, a life rooted in this Trinitarian trust and reality that he had with his father. Can you feel this with me? I'm, I'm not afraid, I'm not desperate, I don't feel cornered. I have this eternal relationship with God and I, I know the outcome of this story and, and I know from where I've come and where I'm going. And so in that, Jesus says, if you love me and you want in on sort of the family business of the Trinity and you give yourself to it, then you will have a different kind of life now. It's the kind of life, Jesus said, that's marked by peace. But not peace like those of you who are old enough in the room to remember detente, you know. Not peace like detente, you know, that agreement between the Russians and the Americans in what, the 80s, late 80s? Not detente. But there's this 
very important little personal pronoun in front of the word peace. My peace, Jesus said. The kind of peace I know, having come from eternity and going back to eternity, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives to you, do I give you. So, hear that logical connective? So then, let not your hearts be troubled. Don't feel trapped. And don't let a trappedness lead to a rationale for desperate, violent, ugly behavior. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. So again, in Eastertide, we've been reminding ourselves that the word who became flesh and lived amongst us after the resurrection continues to be with us by the Spirit, continuing to make his home with us, even as he is away, preparing our eternal dwelling with him. So as we come to a quiet time this morning, I want to set before you a vision of inspired decisions. Not, not desperate ones, not cornered ones, but inspired decisions led by the Spirit. By hearing the voice of God, whether a dream or a vision or however, by hearing the voice of God and how that leads to creative and fruitful ministry, sometimes so created, creative, so fruitful that it changes the course of human history. I invite you to just sit for a moment with this question, where might the Spirit be leading you in this moment of your life? Where? Where might he be leading you? Right now, today, in this moment, this era, this time in your life. And I invite you to just pause for a moment and to just pay some attention to that question. <laughs> 